Welcome to the February installment of our Tuesdays with Merton webinar. I'm Liz Burkemper, and I serve on the board of directors for the International Thomas Merton Society. Tuesdays with Merton is presented by the International Thomas Merton Society and co-sponsored by the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Join us for this webinar series on the second Tuesday of each month. Tonight's webinar will be recorded and available both on YouTube and as a podcast soon after the live event. The talk will be followed by moderated discussion and Q&A, and our speaker has provided discussion questions on which you can reflect and comment during this time. Or you can ask any questions you might have of the speaker after the talk. Now, I would like to turn it over to Rose Marie Berger, member of the Board of Directors of the International Thomas Merton Society, to offer our opening prayer this evening. Hello, everyone. I'm so glad for you all to be here uh, on this Tuesdays with Burton community. It's it's great to have our our guest Leslie with us this evening. Um, in my particular strand of the Catholic tradition, we are celebrating Mardi Gras uh, today. We are celebrating uh, the end of Carnival season. That that. Uh, started with Epiphany and ends tomorrow on Ash Wednesday. Um, and so I was thinking about Mardi Gras as a season of, of masking. And unfortunately, I don't have any of my awesome Mardi Gras masks with me right here, but it's, it's, a, it's a day of, uh, where we make these wild and fierce and, and startling masks um, that reflect who we are and reflect who we are not. And we practice uh, on, on Mardi Gras, we practice putting on our masks and taking them off so that we can continue to know that they are uh, something that is, is under our control. Um, we put them on and take them off so that we know that we are not becoming our masks. And so that led me to thinking about Merton's quote from, from Raids on the Unspeakable and about masking. And I, I just wanna offer it as our, as our prayer tonight. Merton says, if we take our vulnerable shell to be our true identity, if we think our mask is our true face, we will protect it with fabrications, even at the cost of violating our own truth. This seems to be the collective endeavor of society. The more busily we dedicate ourselves to it, the more certainly it becomes our collective illusion. Until in the end, we have the enormous obsessive uncontrollable dynamic of fabrications designed to protect mere fictitious identities, to protect selves that are regarded as objects. So as we close out the season of Carnival and enter into our season of Lent, 
Dear God, teach us to regard ourselves and one another as fully living beings, as among those who are becoming children of God, as those who can put on and take off masks in celebration of life, not those who have become enslaved to falseness. We ask your blessing on our presenter tonight. We hold up the prayers of all who are gathered here. And we are grateful that we can gather in the name of our brother Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for offering the prayer tonight, Rose. Now it is my honor to introduce our speaker for the evening, Leslie Colvin. Leslie is a writer, spiritual companion, and contemplative activist. She has extensive experience in promoting mission and expanding outreach of a variety of sectors, including faith-based nonprofit, government, corporate, and academia. Inspired by the Catholic social justice tradition, Leslie is passionate about encouraging diversity of thought, especially as it relates to those often marginalized within the community. Here is Leslie Colvin speaking on Merton, an invitation to unbind him and ourselves. Leslie? Thank you very much. Good evening, everyone. How do I speak to you about Thomas Merton, a man whom I did not know? I am going to begin by referencing three others. Father Richard Rohr, Pope Francis, and the late Congressman John Lewis, whose childhood home in Southeast Alabama was 50 miles from my own. My desire is to provide a glimpse of a man whom many of you are familiar within the context of his time, a perspective influenced by my lived experience and the context within which we dwell, a context in need of unbinding. When Father Richard Rohr speaks of founding the Center for Action and Contemplation, he is always clear to state that the most important word in the name is and, the concept of action as well as the concept of contemplation are parts of a whole. When they nurture each other, they foster the emergence of a non-dual third path that I refer to as contemplative activism. Rohr's desire was sparked by having witnessed time and again, activists who experienced burnout. It continues to be a common problem 
among those hungry to serve the common good. Rohr recognized the value or balance that engaging in contemplative practice would provide to sustain these people in their work. My contemplative practice can inform my conscience, empower me to question injustice, compel me to act, and on difficult days, restore my soul. Conversely, my actions to bring about social change lead to gratitude for God's abiding presence in the struggle for justice. This gratitude then returns me to contemplation. In September, 2015, Pope Francis made an apostolic journey to Cuba and the United States. In hindsight, his words to Congress and the nation resonate for me more today than at the time spoken. From the Capitol, he stated, each son or daughter of a given country has a mission, a personal and social responsibility. Your own responsibility as members of Congress is to enable this country by your legislative activity to grow as a nation. You are the face of its people, their representatives. You are called to defend and preserve the dignity of your fellow citizens in the tireless and demanding pursuit of the common good for this is the chief aim of all politics. A political society endures when it seeks as a vocation to satisfy common needs by stimulating the growth of all its members, especially those in situations of greater vulnerability or risk. My visit takes place at a time when men and women of goodwill are marking the anniversaries of several great Americans. The complexities of history and the reality of human weakness notwithstanding, these men and women, for all their many differences and limitations, were able by hard work and self-sacrifice, some at the cost of their lives, to build a better future. They shaped fundamental values which will endure forever in the spirit of the American people. A people with this spirit can live through many crises, tensions, and conflicts, while always finding the resources to move forward and 
to do so with dignity. These men and women offer us a way of seeing and interpreting reality. In honoring their memory, we are inspired even amid conflicts and in the here and now of each day to draw upon our deepest cultural reserves. Francis continues, I would like to mention four of these Americans, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, Dorothy Day, and Thomas Merton. After acknowledging the contributions of Lincoln, King, and Day, he moves to Merton. A century ago, another notable American was born, the Cistercian monk, Thomas Merton. He remains a source of spiritual inspiration and a guide for many people. In his autobiography, he wrote, I came into the world free by nature in the image of God. I was nevertheless the prisoner of my own violence and my own selfishness in the image of the world into which I was born. That world was the picture of hell, full of men like myself, loving God and yet hating him, born to love him, living instead in fear of hopeless, self-contradictory hunger. Merton was above all a man of prayer, a thinker who challenged the certitudes of his time and opened new horizons for souls and for the church. He was also a man of dialogue, a promoter of peace between peoples and religions. The line that resonates most deeply within me is Merton was above all a man of prayer, a thinker who challenged the certitudes of his time and opened new horizons. Hold that concept for a moment. Merton challenged the certitudes of his time what were they? What are the certitudes of our times? Do we challenge them? Following Francis' address to Congress, Representative John Lewis released a statement. The Holy Father, Pope Francis of the Holy See, delivered a powerful message to Congress and the American people today. In his humble, gentle way, he used his authority to encourage us all to simply do what is right to protect the dignity of all humankind. 
He said, all political activity must serve and promote the good of the human person and be based on respect for his or her dignity. Politics is an expression of our compelling need to live as one in order to build as one the greatest common good. Pope Francis delivered one of the most moving speeches I have ever heard in all my years in Congress. Though I was reluctant to openly shed tears, I cried within to hear his words. I was deeply moved to realize I had a connection in some way with some of those he mentioned. Thomas Merton was a monk whose words I studied during nonviolence training in the civil rights movement. It was amazing that the Pope mentioned the Selma to Montgomery March because during the first attempt to march to Montgomery, now known as Bloody Sunday, I carried one of Thomas Merton's books in my backpack. In a C-SPAN interview recorded in 1998, Lewis had this to say about Merton. I started reading Merton when I was in school in Nashville as a seminary student, and he was very inspiring, very, very inspiring reading his work, what he had to say about life, about self, about, in a sense, forgetting about your own circumstances, losing yourself in the circumstances and the problems of others. The whole idea of contemplation, the whole idea of meditation and the whole idea of action and service. In 1965, John Lewis was 25 years old and the chairman of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. During the organization's February meeting, he said, Father Thomas Merton raises this question in his book, Seeds of Destruction. Is it possible for Negroes and whites in this country to engage in a certain political experiment such as the world has never yet witnessed? and in which the first condition would be that whites consented to let Negroes run their own revolution, giving them the necessary support and being alarmed 
at some of the sacrifices and difficulties that this would involve. Less than one month later, on March 7, 1965, Lewis expected to be arrested. Preparing for his time in jail, he packed a toothbrush, toothpaste, two pieces of fruit, and two books, including one by Merton. Lewis was severely beaten as he and more than 600 marchers sought to cross Selma's Edmund Pettus Bridge. Because of the brutal violence of the Alabama State Troopers, the day became known as Bloody Sunday. From 1929 to 1968, the lives of Dorothy Day, Martin Luther King, and Thomas Merton converged in their existence as contemporaries in the call inspired by faith for racial and social justice and nonviolence. Dorothy Day was a journalist whose conversion led her to found the Catholic worker movement. She met Merton when he was a student at Columbia University, volunteering at Friendship House in Harlem. Martin Luther King Jr. was a Baptist minister and one of the most significant voices during the civil rights movement from 1955 to his assassination in 1968. King and Merton had a mutual friend in Atlanta who was facilitating King's going to Gethsemane for a retreat with Merton in April, 1968. King's decision to travel to Memphis in support of the striking sanitation workers preempted his plans to be on retreat with Merton. The two men would never meet. Merton is widely known as a contemplative who lived as a monk. His work on issues that challenge the normative racial and social injustice and nonviolence is unfortunately less known. This is the part of his work that the late Congressman John Lewis would have referred to as good trouble. Recognizing the value of this work, more and more of his modern day students are choosing to amplify it. In doing so, they are unbinding the collective memory of the man and his work. A thinker who challenged the certitudes of his time and opened new horizons.
I am before you as the daughter of Alma and Thomas, the sister of Tommy and Angie, the granddaughter of Lessie and Quincy and Flora and Thomas. My immediate ancestors were from the land of the Muscogee, which is known as Alabama. Hearing me speak, it is important for you to have some awareness of the systems and structures that influence who I am today. I invite you to consider how the same systems and structures influence who you are. My family has lived on this continent for 400 years. Before that, my ancestors were from African nations, England and Germany. Those from the African continent arrived in shackles in the belly of ships as cargo. For four centuries, they experienced this systemic denial of their humanity, dignity, and rights. Those from the European continent chose to come here to build a new life of freedom for themselves. A citizen of this nation, I know our founding fathers and mothers considered me unworthy of citizenship and freedom. I was born before the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The Supreme Court ruling four years before my birth that separate is not equal in the case of Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka did not mean that I would enter the first grade in a racially integrated school a decade later. As a Christian, I know the Bible and Christianity were distorted to justify the supremacy of persons with white bodies. As a woman in a black body, I do not have the luxury of ignoring the tensions and discomforts generated by the flawed construct of race. I know well the urgency of now. These experiences shaped by the dominant belief in and or acceptance of white supremacy in turn influenced my relationship with scripture I understand it not as the victories of a dominant power, but as a long view of a people's relationship with God.
As an African-American whose family survived the ineffable horrors of the Middle Passage, enslavement, and Jim Crow, the story of the Hebrew people's exodus feels almost personal to me. When the Black church hears of God telling Pharaoh to liberate God's people, it is the same God who commands our deliberation and that of all marginalized peoples. Our relationship to this narrative influences how we view our Christian faith in a manner that is not the normative. It is not mainstream. I was first attracted to Thomas Merton because of the words he used to craft one of my favorite prayers. It begins, my Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. And it concludes with, you will never leave me to face my perils alone. In the words of this prayer, he humbly acknowledges a deference to the creator of all. His words are poetic as they speak to the desires of his heart and the challenges of life. I was intrigued. He spoke clearly, simply and eloquently to my journey, not only to my faith journey, but also to the journey of my life. Merton's words went directly to my heart and the hearts of countless others. The prayer led me to Seven Story Mountain, which left me perplexed, disappointed that the text did not resonate with me I still have not completed the book. Several years ago, I attended a conference at Bellarmine University in Louisville. Between lectures and meetings, I found my way to the university's library where the Thomas Merton Center is housed. Little did I know that I was standing upon a threshold for my relationship with this man whose transformative experience at the intersection of what is now Fourth and Muhammad Ali Boulevard in downtown Louisville is beyond compelling. He writes, in Louisville, at the corner of Fourth and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of 
spurious self-isolation in a special world. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being man, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate. As if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me. Now that I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this, but it cannot be explained. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around, shining like the sun. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts. The depths of their hearts were neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach the core of their reality, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could all see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. But this cannot be seen, only believed and understood by a peculiar gift. Imagine this moment. Who is present? Question the normative. Acknowledge the discomfort, but stay with the question. Questioning certitudes and opening new horizons lead us to see anew and to expand our understanding. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. Years after my visit to Bellarmine, I learned of Merton's Seeds of Destruction. Published in 1965, it includes his letters to a white liberal. In using the term liberal, Merton is not referencing partisan politics. He means any white person, particularly Christians, who claim good intentions toward all people, including those of us who are BIPOC. In these letters, Merton writes, I do not claim to be a prophet 
or even a historian. I do not profess to understand all the mysteries of political philosophy, but I question whether our claims to be the only sincere defenders of the human person, of his rights or his dignity, of his nobility as a creature made in God's image, as a member of the mystical body of Christ can be substantiated by our actions. It seems to me that we have retained little more than a few slogans and concepts that have been emptied of reality. The more research I did, the more curious I became about Thomas Merton. Recognizing his privilege as an educated, heterosexual, cisgendered man in a white body, he was not bound to normative ways of being. After reading James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, Merton penned him a letter in 1963. You cannot expect to write as you do without getting letters like this. One has to write, and I am sure you have received lots of letters already that say better than I can say what this will try to say. First of all, you are right all down the line. You exaggerate nowhere. You know exactly what you are talking about. And as a matter of fact, it is really news to nobody. I agree with you. But the point is that this is one of the great realities of our time. For Americans, it is perhaps the crucial truth and all the other critical questions that face us are involved in this one. You are very careful to make explicit the non-Christian attitude you take. And I respect this. I am in most things right with you. And the only point on which I disagree is that I think your view is fundamentally religious, genuinely religious, and therefore has to be against conventional religiosity. At the heart of the matter then is man's contempt for truth and the substitution of his self or reality. His image is his truth. He believes in his specter and sacrifices human beings to his specter. This is what we are doing, and this is not Christianity or any other genuine religion. It is barbarity. As Pope Francis said, 
Merton was a thinker who challenged the certitudes of his time and opened new horizons. Contemplation led Merton to ponder and address difficult and painful questions. The same questions that are never raised in polite society. The questions that lead one to question oneself and the privileges received for simply being born with a white body. How easy it would have been to ignore the world's problems secluded in a monastery. Yet, he did not ignore the systemic and pervasive racial injustices he witnessed. Although he lived the last half of his life in the South, in 2024, the world is well aware that racism and white body supremacy are not confined to a single region, but exist from sea to shining sea. As Nelba Marquez Green noted, white supremacy is not the elephant in the room. It is the room. Merton's commitment to contemplation did not bind his compassionate action, but it compelled him to transcend the walls of the monastery. On Sunday, September 15, 1963, 200 miles from my home, four girls in black bodies, Eddie Mae Collins, Carol Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley were murdered when members of the Ku Klux Klan planted a bomb under the steps of 16th Avenue Baptist Church in Birmingham. Merton wrote a letter to Chris McNair, the father of Carol Denise. This is not exactly an easy letter to write. There is so much to say and there are no words in which to say it. I will say it as simply as I can in the hope that you will understand this message from a total stranger. I saw the pictures you took of Carol Denise in Look Magazine several months ago. One of them meant so much to me that I cut it out and kept it. It seemed to say so much, principally about goodness and about the way in which the goodness of the human heart is invincible and overcomes the evil and wickedness that may sometimes be present in other men. 
being a writer and a writer of poems, I eventually was moved to write a poem. And now that it has been published, I want to send you at least this copy of it. It is a somewhat angry poem because I think that a little anger is still called for. I hope that love and compassion also come through. For anger is not enough and never will be. At any rate, I wanted to say what you already know and believe, that the mercy and goodness of the Lord chose Carol Denise to be with him forever in his love and his light. Nor is she forgotten on the earth. She remains as a witness to innocence and to love and an inspiration to all of us who remain to face the labor, the difficulty to love and the heartbreak of the struggle for human rights and dignity. A thinker who challenged the certitudes of his time and opened new horizons. Contemplation has the capacity to lead us to epiphanies on our journey. Several years ago, I began to contemplate John's account of Jesus restoring Lazarus' life. Few would argue that most of the attention is given to Jesus weeping and the unexpected call for his dead friend to come forth. Seemingly in an instant, I recognized what was hidden in plain sight. As with most epiphanies, I was stunned. Had I really never heard a homily or talk on this command Jesus gave to bystanders 2,000 years ago? It is an enduring command that continues speaking to us today. It is clear and concise, simple and direct. Jesus cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, tied hand and foot with burial bands, and his face was wrapped in a cloth. So Jesus said to them, unbind him, and let him go. Unbind him and let him go. The words are alarming in their explicitness. They are an invitation, no, a command to participate in the liberation of our brothers and sisters as well as ourselves. Unbind him and let him go. Are we compelled to react to the command? Do we question normative practices? 
Do we restore this man to his place in our family and community? Dare we risk breaking tradition by touching burial bands? To some degree, each of us is bound by the systems of death in which we live. We are bound by practices and ways of being that privilege some at the expense of the dignity of others. We are all bound. Misogyny, white body supremacy, racism, homophobia, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, nativism, xenophobia, colonialism, American exceptionalism, anti-immigrant, poverty, classism, Christian nationalism, clericalism, mass carceration. This list is not complete, but these are some of the burial bindings we are called to undo so that we may liberate others and ourselves. I believe that Merton's contemplative practices led him to question the certitudes of his time, to unbind himself from normative ways of being. It is reflected in his body of work that challenges our nation's 400-year-old death bands the normative belief in white supremacy and the status quo of racial injustice. What are your thoughts? Have you ever wondered if we, if you are bound or liberated by the systems in which we live? As a citizen of the United States, I know well the promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and the myth of living in the land of the free. These words are impressed upon our young minds long before we have an understanding of the complex chapters of the nation's problematic history and reality. We live in a society that was built upon denying the humanity of many persons, including those of us who identify as BIPOC. Tragically, this certitude is not obsolete. The murder of George Floyd and too many others are gut-riching reminders. There is no greater threat to my humanity, to my life, than the enduring legacy of white body supremacy and systemic racism. Whether I am interested in environmental, housing, education, or economic problems. It is impacted 
by the flawed construct of race. Not only did Merton write about matters of racial and social, social justice, but he also engaged with persons and thoughts that were frowned upon by the status quo. Recognizing his privilege, he was not bound to the certitudes of his time. It is not an exaggeration to say that by doing so, he put his life at risk. As onlookers stood and watched Lazarus standing upright and breathing in their midst, did they really need to be told what to do? Were they frozen by certitudes? Did their inaction compel Jesus to command, unbind him, and let him go? Today, that is Christ's command to us, the command heard by Thomas Merton and countless others throughout time. Unbind them and let them go. Thank you. Thank you so much, Leslie, um, for so thoughtfully sharing with us this evening. Uh, now I'd like to turn it back over to Rosemary Berger, our moderator for the evening for discussion and Q&A. All right, everybody who wants to put their amen in the chat or <laughs> raise your hands to uh, give your signal your applause. That is wonderful. We are so, so grateful, uh, Leslie, for that depth of wisdom and the way that you were able to bring, uh, engage the, the animating spirit of Merton um, on some of the, the toughest things uh, before us. Um, these are the things that that in our wrestling bring us closer to God. And we just can't thank you enough. Um, I know there are a few folks that have questions, but uh, in particular, I'd like to invite um, Cecilia Bravevoy to lead us off. And maybe do that by um, just un unmuting yourself if you can. Yes. Ha Leslie, thank you so, so, so much. I always enjoy listening to you, and I haven't heard from you speaking in, in, in over, at least over a year or so. Um, also, thank you. thank you for taking us through some of the other witnesses, uh, like Pope Francis and uh, Richard Rohr and... Dorothy Day and all of those others. Um, I was interested in what you said about James Baldwin 
and Merton because it relates, I think, to if um, Merton lived long enough, he would have used the phrase probably truth to power because one of the things he constantly talked about was the way that our egos are so much involved um, and in the destruction and in the um, badness in a sense. Let me also ask you, did in your um, looking at Merton's life, his latter part of his life, he looked at Eastern religions, um, particularly Buddhism. Did you come across some things uh, from that uh, that contributed? For me, um, I liked his new seeds of contemplation, and then he began to write about the Eastern uh, effect on his life, Eastern religious spirituality. I did. Uh, I'm I'm not clear on the question, Cecilia. But yes, I did, um, and I, I did research about Merton, um, his interest in Buddhism, and I think that is another example of him moving beyond um, certitudes, as Pope Francis says, um, and also I I think that that's a reflection of the perennial wisdom that is a common thread throughout um, the great faith tradition that, that transcends um, what is prescribed by faith, different faith traditions. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Carol, do you wanna go ahead and unmute? Carol, are you there? This is like late night radio. Wait, I'm, <laughs> I'm showing my I hands. had raised my hand in applause. And oh, okay, okay, good, excellent, amen. all right. I apologize. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, uh, David, do you wanna jump in? Thank you. Um, thank you, Leslie, so much. I think if I heard you right in this metaphor of unbinding, um, it's a continuation of, of the message that the African-American movements for liberation, um, Dr. King, uh, Representative uh, Lewis, Howard Thurman, and others, have wanted to say to people like me who, who uh, are white, that as long as you fail to recognize the full humanity of anybody else, your own humanity takes a hit. You lose that much uh, of your own full humanity. You are bound. Um, and, and I think perhaps the hardest thing uh, for white Americans is to recognize that, to hear that we are, we have a problem, we are the problem, we are involved in the problem, and we all want to say, hey, I didn't do any of that, I'm not that, I didn't do that. Um, 
So I just say, say, thank you for, for, for bringing that in. Um, I, I think to me, the response to that is, okay, you didn't start it. Or how are you going to help end it? Um, you didn't start it. What are you doing to, to end it? Um, so thank you. I think you've, you've pointed us toward helping to unbind ourselves. Thank you, David. Um, you remind me of a piece that I wrote um, that I will, uh, I'll try to get a link for and uh, share it in the chat if I, if I can find it. Um, so thank you. Thanks. Uh, Richard, do you want to jump in? You can unmute. Yeah. Okay. I'm funny. Old eyes see small print gets to be a challenge. <laughs> um, I need to, having been one of the white bodies that they looked for back in the 60s, uh, particularly when I was working for a Southern Christian Leadership Conference, uh, primarily in Chicago and other areas, I don't want us to lose that. There are a lot of greats, Martin Luther King, Ralph Abernathy, and that group. But I need to speak up for the, for the laborer, for the mother pushing a baby carriage, for folks that came out and even not famous, what have you, but they put their bodies on the line for something that they believed. And where I support everything you said, I don't want us to forget, you know, Ralph didn't walk across the bridge by himself. Thank you. Thank you okay. so much, Richard. That is such yeah. an important, and and that is in part why I wanted to, um, to say that Merton was putting his life on the line, even by uh -huh. speaking up, because, you know, regular everyday people, right, um, were attacked. Um, yeah. You know, people with that with with not big names, and um, so thank you very much for bringing that to the table. I appreciate that. Thank, thank you. you. All right, that's good. Thanks, uh, Paul. You want to jump in? Trying to get myself unmuted. Thank you, Rose. Um, Leslie, I um, that was that was powerful. That was moving, and it's almost like um, you held all the best to the last. <laughs> it was it was really uh, really. I mean, just it was that was wonderful. Um, I'm I'm thinking about some of the things you said about about contemplation and, and action and Merton's contemplative practice that led to his participation in, in justice. Um, also thinking about, uh, you named so many systems that bind us that like nobody could escape. So, so if, if, someone, if you say I'm not this, then you probably got, they probably got them over here on another one. So I, I guess what's in my mind often is if contemplation opened us to be aware of the falsity of the system, um, 
what is it that what's 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 the thing that takes us from that awareness to actually doing something do you have any comments on that because i think a lot of people would say um that system doesn't bind me or i'm aware of that system and my participation in it but what's like how do you get to the next step That might be a question for the Holy Spirit, Paul. Um, because um, no one wants to experience discomfort. And I think that unless people are encouraged to experience the discomfort, of what they see or the questions that are asked if they embrace if they embrace the discomfort and say yes this does not feel comfortable for me i don't like the feeling but stick with it and that i believe can lead to transformation that's the i think that's the only way to get to transformation but in our society, you know, we see discomfort a mile away and we detour, right? So we are not taught, yeah, uh, we are not taught to experience discomfort for a greater good. Thank you. Uh, Heidi, do you want to, do you want to jump in? Thank you. I, hi, Leslie. What a wonderful Thank job you. you did tonight. I, it was wonderful. Um, I just wanted to know what you thought about the role of community is with regard to the lessons of Merton and his interaction with all these people. And then how he was, uh, um, of course, a uh, what do you call it, monk, right? Uh, cloistered in his, other than the few times he got to go out, right? That he asked permission. But I'm wondering if you see community as important foundation for activism. Yes, that is important, Heidi. Thank you. And I think in some way, Martin was able to develop a sense of community with the people to whom he corresponded. I mean, it's mind boggling how many, and, and uh, it's mind boggling how many people he communicated with by uh, letter. Um, but I think that for most of us, it's healthy and important to have a community with us, um, but I would imagine that based on his relationships with his brother monks, um, he may have grown to accept them as they were, and if there were some there that he could feel connected 
too. I think that would have been useful. But there was a hunger for him to hear and to be heard. And I think that through his correspondence that need that is filled by community was met. But I need to spend more time with that, so thank you. <laughs> thank you for the answer. There are lots of good comments in the in the chat um, and uh, lots of engagement with with the wonderful presentation. Are there are there uh, any other questions? Oh, I see I see Therese here. Let me. Do you want to do you want to go next? Okay. Well, I thought that was just incredible. Uh, it was it, it it epitomized what you can say when. You, you engage in contemplation, <laughs> the simplicity, the directness, beautiful. Um, I, um, I love that you focused on this question of certitude. And, um, and I think that is our major crisis and trauma in our country is that all the things that you mentioned, Leslie, that all the isms are in our face and there's no escape. <laughs> You know, I mean, every other generation, they could put it on the side, they could do that. There's no escape. And the only way through really is not to have such certitude that what seemed to be the norm is really normal and contemplation. And, and I'll tell you a little story that, you know, like you say, community is very, that was a great question. Um, I'm a lector. I'm um, 84 years old. I've been in my parish forever. Um, and, um, and, and when they, when all of the issues around taking down the statues in the South that were, you know, uh, so offensive, you know, they were actually put up in the fifties. They weren't even from the civil war. Uh, the, there was a, pr the prayer of the faithful. I read the prayer of the faithful and it said something like, let's maintain our culture and not be disturbing or something like that. And I was like, oh my God, I cannot pray that prayer. I was like terrified. Never in my life did that ever happen to me. So I mean, I said my age because you know how many years I've been doing this, right? So I said to my pastor, who's a very nice man, I said, I can't pray this prayer. So he said, what do you mean what prayer? So I said, this prayer, I said, with all of the articles that are coming out and how this is part of transformation, I can't pray that prayer. I, have somebody else be the lector then. Because I, and it was, I was like, I was traumatized by having to say that. And he said, well, what would you say? I said, well, I don't mind praying for peace, but I would say something like, you know, there, you know, we're growing historically, we're going through transitions and we want to try to do that with love and peace, something. Hey, all right, write the, write, write the prayer. I was like shocked, first of all, because he's very controlling. And I, so I write this little prayer and the deacon comes out and I'm not going to say my parish and he comes over. And when the deacon shows up, they say the prayer of the faithful, which really pisses me off, actually. I mean, I feel that they should be scheduled. Right. But, it's you know, that's all right. You got to give, you know, let, 
things go. So he comes, I said, oh, okay. I said, well, here, I was writing on this because I was changing the prayer. So what were you changing the prayer? It was an ex-cop, right? So I said, I couldn't say that prayer. So father said I could change. I said, and he looks at his, listen, he says, you know, he says, you know, you, you can't buy all this stuff, Black Lives Matter and all that. You know, I was a cop in East New York. I felt like punching him. And I'm, I'm a calm person, really. And I, I try to be charitable because I'm very sinful my own self. So I said, listen, I said, um, don't go any further. I said, first of all, I'm a therapist. I said, I'm seeing two cops. They happen to be black from East New York. Isn't that amazing? Because I lived way on Long Island. And it was true. I was working for a couple of years with two African-American cops who worked in East New York. So I said, and secondly, I said, you're treading on the gospel now. This isn't your opinion. We're not talking about your opinion. We're talking about the gospel. Listen, I, what I have to say is this. I had parents who were incredible. If I didn't have them, I wouldn't be able to say. And if I wasn't imbued with Catholic faith that we're all baptized and that the pathology of our country is racism, it's, it's a pathology. It's sick. It's sick. That doesn't mean that I don't have to work at it myself every day. I do. But anyway, I just have to say that I am so grateful to be here and to hear Leslie speak in such a beautiful way. And she is dignity itself. I mean, it's just incredible. And, it, and it's really strengthened me. So I thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Therese. We're so uh, grateful. Leslie, for your presentation and yeah, your your manifestation of your contemplative practice, your faith, um, it comes through in the Zoom. And uh, so thank you very, very much for your dedication to that and the ways that you, you have shared that with us tonight. Um, I'll, I'll send us back over to, uh, to Liz to close us up. Thank you, Leslie. Thanks, Rose. Please join me in continued gratitude for everyone who made tonight possible. So thank you again, Leslie, for being so thoughtful in sharing your voice this evening. Thank you to Rose for offering our opening prayer and moderating discussion. And finally, thank you so much to Christine Penkoski for providing technical support for tonight's webinar. It's, it's very special that we could all gather together. If you'd like to access this recording or others, you can find the links at merton.org ITMS. And registration is now open for next month's webinar when writer and contemplative thinker Sophronia Scott will speak to us on Courageous Conversations on Death with Thomas Merton. If you would like to learn more about the work of our co-sponsor, the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, please visit ctu.edu slash academics slash Bernadine dash center. If you would like to become a member of the International Thomas Merton Society and receive the Merton Seasonal Magazine, as well as updates on our upcoming programs and conferences and information on new books published about Thomas Merton, 
you can join us as a member online at merton.org. Thank you for joining us this evening and continuing to spread the word about Tuesdays with Merton. Take care, everyone, and we look forward to seeing you again next month.